Okay, Colossians 3. If you're new with us, we are going through the prison letters of Paul, which just right off the bat are incredibly impressive and important because if we think about our own lives and what would be the fruit that comes out of us when we're squeezed in really difficult situations like being unjustly imprisoned, if right away, like there's an authority on these letters that are essentially testimonies of Paul's life, genuine testimony of, here's what I'm thinking while I'm in prison. (laughs) Here's my thoughts about God and life and how I'm doing. And wow, is there some incredibly appealing, attractive, good fruit. I mean, the letter of Philippians, it's all about joy, (laughs) gratitude. Joy and gratitude are the themes of his life in prison. It's like, wow. Thank you, Jesus, that you're that powerful and that real to that man while in prison that joy and gratitude are what's on his heart. And so we've continued to move through some of these letters, and now we're in Colossians, and he has spoken an incredible truth that we looked at last week about the opportunity that as we believe in Jesus, we can step into a new life And he uses this language that is already ours in Christ. So it's this paradox. He says, you've died, your old self has died, you've put off this old self, all that old way of life that was causing you such a mess. It was hurting you, it was hurting other people, full of anger, full of resentment, full of envy, full of strife, full of coarse talking, full of all sorts of junk. We've all been there. And he says, you have the power now because it's already been put off. It's already died. You've already been buried. You've already been raised with Christ. All these past tense things of who you are in Jesus. And then he says, so that now you can put on the new self that you've already put on. It's really paradoxical language. It's very interesting. If you weren't here last week, you can just jump on the website and and listen to it. But what it gets to is our privilege, our responsibility of the glorious potential that's already ours in, this, in Christ in this life where he's saying, step into it, walk into it. This is your part in the relationship. God's pursuing you. He has pursued you. He's done all this stuff. He continues to pursue you. And as in any real and authentic relationship, you play a part. This is how he's saying, so this is where you pursue God. Put on these new things. Put on the new self in Christ. Just to read it specifically in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if you have a complaint against one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be grateful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with 
thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of, the, of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's this picture of a really powerful people that God wants you and me and all of us together, all of God's children together, to become in this life. This is not talking about heaven. This is talking about right now. What's already yours in Christ. God's will for you is to put on these powerful characteristics of Christ. The Christ character becomes yours. He says that even in verse 9 or 10. You are being renewed as you put on the new self. Or I'll just read it. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It's like, what? We hear that what that's actually saying as we do our part to put on the new self, our character is being transformed, renewed in the image of God. It's like Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God. Well, that's a high bar. <laughs> but this is the, the inheritance that Jesus bought for you and me on the cross. It's part of the inheritance. Not only is it all of heaven in the future, but it's the character transformation now. Put on the new self. So we looked at that last week, and, and then we move on. And there's, there's a big mistake that often happens as you read into this next passage, which people think, oh, these are isolated. This is a new topic. Paul's kind of left behind this whole put on the new self, and he's going on to new things. And so I want to start, before we even read the passage, to make clear that as we get into these, uh, what you could call rules for the household, which is a little bit, blah, it's a, in a lot of the Christian Bibles, so, you know, it has a little, little header that's added. It's not in the original text. So yes, it is, but it's, it's not a brand new topic. It's really important to see that. Paul's going to flow right into the primary place where the new self is put on and applied, which is in the home, the primary relationships that we have. So let's, let's read, and then we'll get into it here. Colossians 3, we're going to start at 18, and we're just going to go for a few verses, because there's plenty to talk about. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And I'm going to pause there. There is a, another relationship that's talked about, and it says it's bondservants or slaves and masters, and I'm going to pause there because right even away, right away, even as we read that in our ears, what I am confident is the 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 shock that most of us feel is like whoa, like slaves and masters, and Paul just even addresses those relationships. It's like wow, in our 21st century ears, appropriately, we're like, how, how would or why would Paul even address those relationships? Why wouldn't in Christ he just make it really clear that there's no way that the institution of slavery is in any way okay with God? And so I'm going to take, that's going to be all of next Sunday. And not coincidentally, 
the whole book of Philemon is about that issue, and it's connected to the book of Colossians right here because Philemon is a runaway slave from the church of Colossae. So we're going to do, we're going to look at all of that next week. So today, and there's plenty, we're just going to look at these two primary relationships of in, within marriage and parenting. So let me reiterate here, the most unhelpful way to read these short passages is I think probably the most common way, which they're typically read, is to isolate them into these tiny short lists of rules and regulations. As I mentioned it a minute ago, it's what we really need to see is there's no coincidence whatsoever that this household code, if you will, which is what it was called in the Greco-Roman world at the time. This list, no coincidence whatsoever, follows right on the heels of Paul's discussion of putting on the new self. They are not disconnected thoughts in any way. The household relationships are the most frequent opportunity that any of us will have for living out the new self. In the ancient Near East at this time here, these relationships, they are the most central, common, normal relationships in life. They are the primary relationships. They're the people that you are going to be spending the most time with on a day in and day out every day moment by moment, at times, basis. These are the relational center of life. And so it's no coincidence whatsoever that where Paul's talking about this new life that we can put on, all of those things mentioned are relational. They're not meant to be lived out in isolation. I mean, if you think about that list that we talked about, or that is right out of verse 12 of chapter 3, put on... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, gratitude, singing songs. Is that all supposed to be by yourself, with yourself? Oh, man, I'm so compassionate to myself. I have so much grace for myself. I have so much patience for all my own issues. I mean, all of those things are good, actually. But this is all, this new self that Paul has in mind, that's ours in Christ, that we have the, the, the privilege, the inheritance to step into and walk out by the power of the Spirit in this life. It's relationship. It's in other words, as you're being renewed and transformed, it will transform your relationships. And if it's not, you're missing something. Big time. So even by Paul connecting the normal Greco-Roman household code to the gospel message, he's already doing something that's radical. He is saying our relationship with God, the, the transformation our of, of our character that's happening as we put on the new self should be transforming the relationships that we have that are closest to us in everyday life. And if it's not, we're missing the power of the gospel. So this faith that we have in Jesus isn't just an abstract idea or a philosophy or a ticket to heaven. 
It's a life-transforming relationship with God that will transform, if you're stepping into it and putting on the new self, that will transform your character so that the people that you do life with will see a transformation in you. And it'll transform the way that you do life with them. So everything about the household code and these primary relationships that we live with is meant to be where we apply his message of put on the new self. So in some senses, this, this, short, this short little list is here's where, apply, here's where you apply it. New self, new self, new self, apply it here. So when Paul mentioned these relationships, he does, men- he does mention, and we'll get into it here in a second, some specific nuances that he wants to highlight of how the new self is to be lived out in the context of these relationships. But what I'm trying to make clear is that in addition to those specific things we're going to look at, it's all within the backdrop of the whole big new self. All of those things, the specifics that he mentioned that we've read twice, are equally applicable into the new relationships. It's the whole backdrop of how to come into the application of these relationships. So we'll see that more in a minute. And so what you see in all of it is that there is both a God-given structure and a spirit that is meant to be lived out in the household. There is an order that Paul affirms that is healthy and good and by God's design, and then there is the spirit that empowers a new self to live out within that order and those relationships. Or like C.S. Lewis said, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The, and I know we're all scared of the word rules, but just, just go with it. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. I know that's kind of a lot to grab onto. He's smarter than all of us. But (laughs) the alternative to having any sort of order is the unconstitutional, unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Another way to look at this is everyday life plays out this reality with great clarity. We need structure. We need order. What organization is successful if there's not someone leading the team? What business will be any good for the long term if no one is in charge of setting the course and the vision? What sports team has ever been successful without good leadership from a coach? What country will have prosperous and free citizens if there's no government to lead and protect well? So similarly, similarly, there we go. Paul is laying out a very basic structure of household relationships. But it is this structure within the context of the Spirit of God flowing in everyone. And that is so huge to have in our minds because structure without Spirit is dangerous. Structure with Spirit, Paul's going to point us to, when structure and Spirit are together, there are thriving, prosperous, fruitful people. When there is structure and no spirit, there is harsh oppression. When there is no structure and no spirit, there is chaos 
And that's kind of what our society right now is pushing. Every, every time, you, you know, the, the classic traditional Christian values of family are attacked, and they are from about every possible direction in this day and age, it's a push towards chaos. It's a push towards saying, no, there's no absolute truth. Everything's relative, whatever you feel, which is, it is being put all the way down into our kindergartners right now. Just, just whatever you feel. There's no such thing even anymore as a boy and a girl. How oppressive could that be that God would actually create you with a purpose? I am offended at you, God, that you had the audacity to oppress me with an actual gender. No, thank you. I'm for, I'm going to decide that on my own. And that's what's being taught in public schools in California right now because we're so afraid of anything that resembles truth because it's so oppressive. Oh, the truth, the structure of it that's just putting me in bondage. So the alternative is, oh, you decide whatever you want. There's no coincidence whatsoever that in our country there is also the highest rate of deaths of despair that this country has ever had. Because when you tell children that they have no purpose and there is no truth and they're essentially meaningless, just feel it out. Don't wonder why children grow up and feel like they have no purpose and they have no point and there is no meaning, so screw it, I'm ending it. So, anyways, <laughs> husbands and wives. <laughs> that's what we're supposed to talk about. So, no, but that's, this is an, that's an important picture. Structure and spirit. God's way. So let's look into some of the specifics. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So there's structure and there's spirit. And obviously our, our culture wants to do everything it can to dismantle a very simple biblical picture that's been there from Genesis, reaffirmed by Jesus in multiple ways, that if from the beginning God created man and woman to leave his father and mother and cling together in this great mystery where they would become one flesh in Christ. It's God's design. So it's not, a, it's not a surprise that God's design, if the enemy's real, which he is, is going to be attacked. So, obviously our culture is attacking that. This passage affirms that God has designed husbands to be the spiritual leaders in the home. And all he says to wives here is to affirm and encourage their husbands in that role. And then Paul speaks two specific aspects of the spirit-filled life, the new self, the new putting on the new self in Christ that the husband is meant to bring into the relationship as part of this new self in Christ. I'll go to the second part first because the first is just so good. You don't even need anything else. But let's just go to the, first, the second part. Don't be harsh with them. That is a, the protective guardrail that Paul wants to be clear so that the structure never loses the spirit and becomes oppressive. Don't be harsh. It's really simple. Being harsh literally means to make bitter or resentful. So this is the simple but clear call to never allow your role to become an excuse for becoming a dictator. That is the structure without the spirit. It's not God's heart in any fashion. 
And this is an upside down thing for the culture right, right away, for the cult, first century, to hear this, because there's no cultural expectations in any way that husbands wouldn't be harsh. I mean, marriage had been incredibly devalued to the point where there's, there's rabbis talking about if, if the wife burned the toast, it's grounds for divorce. I mean, stuff that's so offensive to the heart of God. It's come so far in devaluing the beautiful mystery that God created in the oneness of marriage that, that wow. In God's economy, there's a different way. And Paul simply says, husbands, if you're harsh, you've lost your way. That's the guardrail to keep accountable to make sure the spirit is in the structure. But then, or really, but the first thing he says is really all you need. And it is wildly countercultural at the time. Husbands, what's your job? Love your wives. And there's no coincidence whatsoever that he uses the word agape in the Greek, which there are multiple options for love. There's phileo, which is like the friendship love. There's eros, which is erotic love. You know, those things should be in a marriage too. But this is agape, which is, the, the, the Bible uses this word to describe the very essence of the nature of God. It is the kind of love described to get at God's the core of how does God look upon the world in Ephesians 1, 5, where it says, in love, God predestined this plan to save the world. And it's this picture of this fountain spontaneously overflowing with goodness. Meaning you don't, we don't have to deserve it. We don't earn it. It's just a fountain that overflows, but it's more than that. So it's this force of nature coming, but the main thing to know about it, it's a self-giving love that cares about the good of others to the point of sacrifice. Jesus described that love in John 15, where he says, greater love, same word, agape, has no one than this, than someone who lays down his life for the one's he cares about his friends. Ephesians 5 says it like this in a parallel pas passage. A picture of leadership is paralleled in the household code of Ephesians 5. And it's expanded in some very cool ways. To, to specifically include or play out this picture of what is agape love. It's, it's just this bam, husbands, love your wives which in itself is very countercultural as the expectation of what the marriage would be based on, the leadership role would be primarily what? Love. We're in a whole new world right now. Yes, we are. It's called the kingdom of God. It's God's economy. It's the new self put on and applied into the home. And this picture is beautifully played out in Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. It's agape. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificed of himself for her good, lives a life of sacrifice that she might be lifted up and empowered. And a further picture of that is in, in Ephesians 5.23 where it says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The picture of head there, the, the, the biggest or the 
most clear imagery that's attached to that is the general of an army, kefale. It would be the Roman general of an army who's the head of the army. But picture the movie, and I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, the movie Braveheart, and you've got the battle, any one of those battles, and you've got those English lords who are the head of their army, and they're sitting up on their horses, and they're like back, and they're snickering, and they're like, hey, we're sending the infantry. And then one of the guys is like, Lord, that, you know, if we shoot our arrows at the same time, we're going to kill our men. And they're like, I don't care. And they just sit back there, and, and they're, they're little pansies. But they're the head of that army, as opposed to Braveheart with all his blue on, and he's the real head running into, he's the first one into battle. That's a real leader. And that is the exact picture of it saying, if husbands, be that leader. Be the one who's first into battle for your family, against the devil, in prayer, in worship, in the word. They're looking to you to be the one who says, come on. Yes, life's a battle, but let me show you by example what it looks like to be a soldier for Jesus. And we're not done. Now Paul's going to get real nice. In, in Ephesians 5, he says, in the same way, husband 28, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So there's further description of this agape love. Not only are you this fierce warrior who will go first into battle for your family, you are also attentive to the needs and desires of your wife to the point where if you asked, she said, I am nourished by you. I am cherished by you. You know my needs and you meet them and you make me feel incredibly valuable. Ladies, is this offensive to you? This is a sexy man. Come on, ladies. Tell your man that you love this. This is good. I mean, seriously. I've never seen a man live this out, and the wife's like, I'm so offended by this guy. <laughs> you, you're not offended when you're prospering, when you're thriving, when you're loved, cherished, valued, fought for. And Paul also goes on in 521, actually, he starts the entire conversation about these household roles with this in verse 521. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The whole beginning of the conversation in Ephesians of this new way, this new self, the new way to live out these household norms, the, <laughs> the application of the new self that he wants to emphasize in Ephesians is submitting to one another. That'll blow some minds in the first century and still now. Oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I, I, guys come in and counseling, you know. They, they love to, like, bring up, oh, well, I think we got some, a problem in our marriage. <laughs> Not sure what submit means. I've had someone say that. Oh, well, brother, you are in trouble and I can't help you. <laughs> You're way above my pay grade. 
Actually, here's one verse for you. You know, meditate on this, talk about this for a month every day, and then come back. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Work on that for a month, and then we'll talk. So why didn't Paul say that in Colossians? Because that's a big deal, a really big deal. To say submit to one another as really the starting point of the conversation to live out this new self. Well, I think he did it in a way. He doesn't need to specifically say it because if you live out the character traits of the new self that are the backdrop for the whole thing, man, you're going to be doing good, husbands. Listen to this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Those, those, are, those are things of mutual submission, forgiving one another. As the Lord forgave you, put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be grateful to one another. So you're telling your wife how much you appreciate her. And here we go, boys. This is a fun one. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Husbands, you are commanded by God to walk around the house singing songs about God and telling your wife how much you're thankful for her. Woo! This is some good news. Am I describing myself, babe? No. <laughs> Don't answer. This is the structure and the spirit together. Power. Fruitfulness. Thriving. Lastly here. For time's sake. Moving on to children. 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, there's a lot going on there. Uh, one thing, fathers, that can be parents. So it's, it's almost impossible to tell what Paul had in mind, specifically because... Greek is a gendered language, so plural is masculine. Like in the same way, anytime you read brothers, it's like brothers and sisters or brethren. Like it's the plural. The plural is in the pronouns and everything. It's masculine, but it includes everyone. So this is almost impossible to know. Is, it, is he just talking to fathers or is he talking to parents here? Because it's the same word. So you can say, we'll say yes. All right, <clears throat> children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So all this right here, is this not as well under absolute assault in our culture? Where the biblical picture that parents are the primary educators of their children in every way as the God-given role is that not under a wild level of assault right now? I mean, and you can look at the public schools, and I've got kids in public school. I'm not saying you, you, know, you can't do that. We've had both, all three, homeschool, private school, public school. You've got to figure out what's working for your family. And, but you see things that are disturbing, like at the middle school level, which I joined with a group of pastors, and we fought it here on the school board with the school board in Menifee, where the curriculum coming down from Sacramento in the sex ed 
you know, includes activities where the children, children, seventh graders, 12, 13, are supposed to, and I, it's in the curriculum, I've read it, I've seen it, one of the first days in sex ed, it's a little exercise where you imagine that you are a gender other than yours, and how does it make you feel? And would you like to explore that? Because it's just good and healthy to explore that. And it's like, get the freak away from my kids. I'll take care of that. That's a God issue. That's a religious issue. That's a parenting issue. That is not the birds and the bees. That is an absolute agenda that in our home would say is against God's ways. And so this is a parent thing. This is the very difficult, delicate conversations that parents need to have first and foremost with their kids. And it's all over the place, though. I mean, they, I read it before a few months back where the UN has put out the whole sexual rights of children under the guise of, oh, we need to protect kids because in some places in the world, kids are sexually exploited. So while, of course, we agree with that, it goes as far, way far, to say that children under 18 have the sexual right, the privilege they should have to be able to do things like abortions and transgender surgeries without the consent of parents because that's oppressive on their sexual rights. So that's just, that's just craziness from a biblical perspective of parents are designed by God to be the primary educators of their children. And children are called by God to trust that process. We're not going to be perfect parents. None of us are. But that posture of, I, God gave me parents for my good. I want to trust them. I want to learn from them. I want to learn the ways of following Jesus from them. So that puts a lot on us parents. The assumption is that we are modeling Jesus for them. And that's where I would say there is one, there's a, there's a word in here that's hard. Obey your parents in everything. In everything? <laughs> That's a, <laughs> that's a hard one <laughs> in everything. So, wow. Uh, talk to Dennis if, if, to know what that means, because I don't know what that means. It's a posture, but I, I, I will say, God is 100% opposed to abuse. 100%. So, if there is a situation where you have been or are being abused, or if you were abused as a kid, that's not God's heart in any way, shape, or form. And I would say in that context, that's kind of the Romans 13 context, where Paul says, submit to your leaders, government, in everything. Same, same language. But then Paul himself, when he's seen that the government is not fulfilling their God-given role and duty to protect uh, the protect from evil and punish evildoers, and that gets flipped, Paul himself defies the government and actually spends most of his ministry as a fugitive from the government. Yet he's the guy who wrote, submit to the government and everything. So it's like when they're doing what they're supposed to do in their God-given role. And you see, see that as well in the book of Acts from Peter and John, who when the government specifically says, don't preach, and they say, mm, who are we going to obey? You or God. So in, in, we got to be careful there because that little phrase could be taken to a way that, oh, well, God is condoning abuse. Submit in everything, children and parents. No way. No way. It's the heart posture that says, I want to 
not get into that typical rebellion where I just do it my own way, think my parents are idiots, go astray. It's no, God has designed these roles for our good, no matter how young or old, to posture our hearts as learners and receivers from the good things of Christ that we see in our parents. That's good for the soul. And so the one specific that he talks about for parents or fathers or both is do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's just a short little phrase. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But as you get into the word, you think about, wow, this is a pretty good one to emphasize the new self. The word discouraged means to lose heart or to be dispirited. The spirit has been taken out of them. And if you reflect on it, it's like that, that probably is one of the primary negative things that happens between parents and children where parents provoke to discouragement to the point where a child regularly can feel things like, I'll never be good enough. I can't live up to those expectations. I haven't done enough to earn that love or affection. Or when could I ever just get that smile or hug of approval. If a child is feeling those on a regular basis to the where it becomes a part of, of their identity, which happens a lot, the child has become dispirited. And Paul, on the other hand, is in this, you know, prohibition or command of the negative, don't don't let them become dispirited. There's also the positive. The other side of the coin is you can see that a primary role of the parents is to build courage in to the children. To build courage in. To build courage into the hearts. To build up that spirit in them. Parenting can either cause children to lose heart or become those brave hearts. To be dispirited or to be passionate and full of life. To be discouraged or to be courageous little ones. As Psalm 112 says, Blessed is the one who greatly reveres the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments for his offspring will be mighty in the land. That's this picture of the privilege of parenting is to build them into the mighty little kingdom warriors that God has designed them to be. And in both of those things, both the, the husband and wife relationship and the parent-child and parenting relationship, it's not all that complicated. It's reflect the heart of God. <laughs> reflect the heart of Christ in your marriage. Reflect the heart of the Father to your children. Put on the new self. Put on the character of Christ and let it permeate all of your relationships. I was singing